following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. says see with what large letters there's a little bit of debate but honestly not a whole lot of debate about why he would say that it's pretty common thought that Paul had very poor eyesight I don't know how he got it maybe it was just degenerative or maybe in one of his many beatings about the face and head as he was preaching the gospel maybe something happened and he was injured and he couldn't see very well so he wrote very large so that he could see what he was writing that's at least the predominant thought either way Paul had a very peculiar way of writing. His handwriting was weird. It was just weird. It was really large. I I don't know what else about it. I would imagine a little bit sloppy if it's really big. Uh, So he had this particular way of writing, and he makes mention of that, not just because he's poking fun at himself or something like that, but it was important for Paul that the Galatians and all the churches would understand that this letter was truly from him. It was truly from him. And, and he even says elsewhere, like at the end of Second Thessalonians, uh, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So there was this common thing, apparently, where he would finish letters of the greeting, say hi to them, please warn them about this, and some final benediction or encouragement. He would write it with his own really large handwriting and when they saw that they would say ah we know that's Paul's handwriting this letter really was from him it's not some forgery or some copy this was written by him himself so whatever this large lettered odd way of writing was that Paul used it was obviously recognizable And finishing his letters in his own handwriting wasn't just a security measure to make sure the letter really was from him. It was also serving another purpose. It served as a reminder to them of Paul as a real person. He was a real person. They knew him. They could remember him. He would come to their town. He would preach the gospel. He would live with someone. He would work with his own hands. He would eat with them, spend all night long explaining the gospel and who Jesus was from the Old Testament scriptures. He would labor over them, weep over them, urge them to trust in Christ and and pay attention to his way of life and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so when they would see these large letters and say, we know it's really from Paul, they would go, right, Paul. We know Paul. We remember Paul. And I really believe that Paul wanted them to remember their minds to go back to those days when he was with them as he gives them these final words. Now he has this final word of encouragement and of warning for them. Many of you, if you have a Bible open in front of you, you may may notice that the editors or the translators have put little headings over different sections of scriptures. And many of them, it will say uh, a final warning, maybe a final warning and a benediction. He gives these final words of encouragement and of warning for them as he's summarizing this letter to the Galatians. So let's jump right in and see what it is after all that Paul has said to them how he might summarize his own letter. He says, starting in verse 12, 
It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. He leads off with something that I believe to him of everything in this letter is the central theme. The most important part of everything he's written is this statement right here. He's warning them about people who have been troubling them with false notions about who Jesus is and what it means to belong to him, to believe in him, to follow him, be his disciple. What it means to be a Christian, the very heart of the gospel is under attack, and here Paul is telling them, here's why. Here's why this has been happening. Here's why these things have been told to you, why it is that you're struggling with what's been said. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So just to remind everyone, especially if you're new with us, when he talks about circumcision, of course, he's talking about the Jewish ritual where they would circumcise a boy on the eighth day of his life and it would mark him as a Jew. It would set him apart as distinct from everyone else, all other peoples in the world who didn't have this custom. It would be a mark on his flesh to show that he belonged to the people of God and to not follow this custom was a, was a great, egregious sin for the Jewish people. They believed that if you didn't have this mark on your flesh, then you didn't belong to the people of God, and therefore you were an enemy of God, not his friend, not his son or daughter. So obviously for the Jews, circumcision was very important, and for Jewish people who were meeting these Gentile believers, there was a temptation to try to get the believers to be Jewish, if not ethnically, at least ceremonially, at least outwardly, they would have marks on their body and they would follow certain customs and certain rules and observe certain days and festivals and seasons so that these non-Jewish believers could at least appear to be as faithful as possible to a Jewish person. But of course, Paul has spent this whole letter saying, listen, Gentiles, you don't have to be Jewish you have to be Christian. There's a blurry line there that he's trying to clear, clear up. What does it mean to be Christian but not Jewish? Now, these Jewish people, these Judaizers, people who would seek to make Gentiles more Jewish in order to be more Christian, they were telling them you have to be circumcised. But he says here, the only reason they're doing this is because they want to make a good showing in the flesh in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul says that the motivation of these false teachers, these people who've crept in among them and twisted the gospel and made it about Jesus plus their good works, everything Jesus did plus everything you can do, which is not the gospel. The gospel says everything Jesus did and nothing else will suffice Nothing else will add to, nothing else can take away from everything he's done. Only Jesus all the time. By grace through faith in him, you're saved. They were hoping, these Judaizers, were hoping that they would become this impressive example of Jewish law keeping. 
that not only would, would they have these marks on their body and they would observe these times and dates and seasons and ceremonies, but that they would go so far as to even win over Gentiles to Jewish law-keeping. Wow! If they could even convince a Gentile to live like a Jew, that's an impressive Jew. You can almost hear them bragging about themselves. Hey, Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem, you know those, um, you remember those filthy Gentiles? You remember the filthy Gentiles out in Galatia, ignorant of the law, living in constant sin, uh, well, you know what? Not anymore. Not anymore. We've circumcised all the dudes, and we've even convinced them to start obeying our laws and observing the Sabbath. They don't even work on Saturday. It was no big deal, really. It took some time and some convincing. But we're just being good Jews, and we're sure you're super proud, and you want to throw a feast in our honor. But please don't go to big trouble. All right? Don't go to big trouble. You could go visit them if you want to see how awesome it was. They were hoping to make this really impressive showing so that they could make a name for themselves, carve out a little territory of leadership for themselves, because they were not only saying Christ is the the Messiah, they were also saying, and you need us to show you how to be super special disciples of His. You've got to follow our rules, our laws, our leadership, making people dependent on them and not on Christ alone. But the even deeper underlying motivation beneath this desire to make a good showing, this desire to be impressive, to make a name for themselves and honor themselves, the underlying sneakier kind of motivation here that Paul has perceived that was driving them was not just that they wanted to be impressive, it was that they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were afraid of them. Their primary motivation, according to Paul in verse 12, was that they wanted to claim to be followers of Christ, but not be persecuted like so many followers of Christ. They wanted to get all the benefits, receive all the benefits, and be noted as very worthy disciples and leaders in His kingdom, even maybe be at His right hand in His kingdom. But they didn't want to suffer for it. They didn't want to receive all of the persecution that was being met out on the church at the time. So they found a way of being prominent and being powerful and being impressive to the Jews, but without causing any trouble between them and the Jews. They were afraid of them. Paul is very specific about how it is that he had perceived what they were afraid of. Why were they afraid of the Jews? What would it be that in being a Jewish Christian would cause you to be persecuted. He's very specific about it. It was their fear of persecution centered around a belief in the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. This is what he points out of, of anything that he could say. It wasn't their way of living. It wasn't how Christians gathered together. It wasn't that they met on Sunday morning and celebrated the resurrection. It wasn't that uh, their idea of the Sabbath was a little more loose than a Jewish idea of the Sabbath. None of these things. It was the cross of Christ. This is what the Jew, the, the Judaizers 
here among Gentile believers in Galatia, were trying to avoid too much belief in, too much emphasis on the cross of Christ. Because if you go too far down that road, if you get too deep into what it was Christ accomplished, and you become too dependent on Him for what He did at the cross, now you're going to start stirring up trouble, and you're going to start working against ideas that the Jews in Jerusalem in their long robes with their very impressive prayers and their positions in the synagogues, that they just could not tolerate. Why would it be that the cross of Christ would cause them to be persecuted? Well, I I don't want to try to just answer that for you with my own ideas, my own opinions, or, or limited knowledge or anything. I want to let Paul tell you, explain his own idea. So let's let Paul tell us why from another letter he wrote to some Christians who were tempted to show off how spiritual they were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So would you go please uh, if you just flip backwards in your Bibles 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, if you're kind of new to the Bible, you're just going to turn to the left, not too far. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 17, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross, be, uh, sorry, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that's the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The cross is foolishness to the world, to those who believe they can earn God's favor, because the cross of God is God's overwhelming declaration to all of humanity that we are weak. We are foolish. We are dirty. We're lost. We are doomed and dead apart from a redeeming outpouring of grace from a merciful God who is holy and who demands justice in His creation. And we stand guilty of violating His holiness. The fact that Jesus came into the world and died on a cross in our place is the most humbling event in all of human history. To remember the cross and to believe in what happened there, it is impossible to stand pridefully. On our own, we are disqualified from being in fellowship with our Creator, but Christ took our shame on Himself and stood us in His place of honor. If that's not a humbling fact, if that's not a humbling thought, then we have to be afraid of our own hearts. As Paul said to the Romans, then what about our boasting? It is excluded because we know that Christ was crucified and that it was the only means of reconciling us to a holy God. What can we possibly boast in? Nothing. We are laid hearts open before the foot of the cross with nothing to bring except dependence, except faith, trust. This is all we have. In other words, everything we used to boast in is revealed to be garbage. Garbage. Anything that might feel, make us feel proud of ourselves, anything that might make us feel confident to come before God, it's revealed to be absolutely worthless when we come face to face with Him. And there's two problems when we don't understand that. When we're not humbled by the cross of Christ, there are two particular problems. One is that we think of ourselves too highly. The other is that we think of God too lowly, that, that we could think to be impressive or acceptable to Him on our own. Is He lower than the Bible describes Him, or are we higher than the Bible describes us? Where's the problem? It's usually both. Usually both. But the cross brings both of those problems and reconciles them. God is most high. And we are found in Christ only when we trust in Him to bring us up to God. The cross of Christ exposes our humility. 
It demands our humility. For a Jewish leader and for any person to confront him with the message of the cross is to tell him that all of his honor, all of her wisdom, all of his righteousness or her goodness amount to nothing. The cross calls us to abandon our self-reliance. Abandon it completely, not mostly, not 99.99% reliant on Christ, but wholly, completely, utterly, categorically dependent on Christ alone. For a person who's been raised to believe that they can earn favor with God, this is flying in the face of all their tradition. Everything they've been taught, everything that they've been taught to count on in order to be in unity with their Creator. Cut them some slack, right? Give them a break. Let's not demonize them too much for struggling with this. Imagine everything you've ever been taught just being flicked away. Counted as nothing. Even called dirty. The Gospel is an offense. And it is foolishness to those who've been taught they can rely on themselves to be worthy of a relationship with God. Abandoning self-reliance, repenting of our efforts to justify ourselves, trust completely in the crucified and risen Christ for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. This is the message of the cross. There is not a Christian in all of church history who has not had to accept that he is powerless and unworthy because the cross leaves no room for doubt about it. No room for doubt. But the cross not only declares our guilt, our shame, our weakness, our failures before this almighty, holy God who demands justice, The cross of Christ also proclaims with no uncertainty that God loves us so much. The same God, the same holy, righteous God who is almighty over all His creation and who demands justice from all of His creatures. The same God loves us so much that looking on our weakness and failure, He would send His own Son to die in our place. The cross declares much more than our guilt. It declares God's overwhelming love that whoever believes in Him not proves himself to Him, not earns a spot at His table, not works hard enough to pay off His debt. Whoever believes in Jesus will not die in his sins, but will be redeemed, made holy, embraced, accepted into an eternal life of joyful fellowship with their Creator King. The cross and the one who hung on it might be foolishness, might be folly, might be Error might be an affront and an offense to the world, but to us who believe He is the power and the wisdom of a God 
who knew we had to be brought to Him because we couldn't make our own way. Power and wisdom. Christ crucified. Proclaiming this gospel message was literally getting people killed. You can imagine why, can't you? Some nobody, dirty Gentile from some Roman colony would dare to speak to a Jewish person. A person with long robes and with honor and with education and who has the word of God passed down from his forefathers, from prophets and kings, from Moses who saw God face to face on a mountain, that you would dare speak to me about me and my relationship with my God? How dare you? That you would tell me my way is failing and that your way, your way is the only way? Foolishness to a Jew. Foolishness to a Gentile. But enlightened by the Holy Spirit, revealed to be ultimate power and wisdom. This message was literally getting people killed, and it still is to this day. Because the world still can't tolerate the idea that it needs mercy from a holy God. Not affirmation of who we already are. But that my whole self must be crucified and buried and left behind. And that a new self in Christ must be lived out. An intolerable message to those who trust in themselves. These false teachers wanted to be associated with Jesus without being humbled by Him, without agreeing with God that their righteousness was insufficient. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've been there. By God's grace, I haven't stayed there because the Spirit inside me calls me back to belief, calls me to remember the cross. Jesus died for sinners. And I'm clearly one of those. But I've been in that place when I forgot that all sinners are on a level playing field. Have you ever been in that spot where you forgot that every despicable sinner out there, every news story you've seen about some horrific act by some horrible person does not place you on a higher level than them? That at the foot of the cross, we are all equally in need of mercy. Sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I think that my puny amount of righteousness that counts for nothing is somehow more worthy of accreditation before God than somebody else's puny little pile of righteousness that amounts to nothing. It's irrational, right? Yet I can find myself in that place and I know when it happens. I know exactly when it happens. I wish I was wise enough and mature enough to always remember and see it coming and stay away, but I know exactly when it happens. 
It's when I forget that Christ died on a cross. When that's not at the front of my mind, when that's not on the tip of my tongue, I forget and I fall into the same kind of pride that leads to a place of self-reliance and seeking to be self-justified. And I constantly need mercy from God, grace from God, power from the Holy Spirit to remind me of the cross and lead me back to a life of dependence. Maybe that's not just for me this morning. Maybe that's for you too, and I'll leave you with the Holy Spirit. Just as the world is still offended by the cross, we who believe must still persist in declaring the cross, not only to the whole world, but also to each other and to our own hearts. So that we would never fall into the same trap of claiming to know Christ, but denying our constant need for Him. Living like people who don't need Christ, but believing at times and in certain places among certain people that we do need Christ. That it would be our theology, but not our way of life. What a dangerous trap. That we would believe that in our humble moments. We would believe it as we sing. We would believe it as we sit and have the word proclaimed over us. But then when someone offends us or attacks us, when someone treats us poorly or even shamefully, that suddenly we would be superior. That we would forget that Christ died both for the offender and the offended. That it was a necessary sacrifice for both of us because we're both insufficient on our own. We both stand together at the foot of the cross in need of mercy. In fact, I believe to remember the cross of Christ makes it extremely difficult to continue in pride and anger towards someone who's offended you and the idea that some person isn't worthy of your time or your friendship. The cross. Remember the cross. Live in light of the cross and all that it proclaims over you. Let's keep reading, because that was just verse 12. (laughs) And we are trying to get out of here for lunch today. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We understand why. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They're doing this with great hypocrisy. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Look what we've done. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world has been crucified to me, he says. For Paul and for all of us who believe the gospel, the world, its ideas about honor, about goodness, about power, about love, about value, the entire world system is dead to us 
Have you ever, I, I hope no one's ever said this to you, but maybe you've seen it on a TV show or a movie, the phrase where somebody gets super mad at somebody else and they go, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. Fortunately, no one's ever said that to me. It's one of my greatest fears in life that someone I really love and feel like I need would just go, you are dead to me. And that's the part where I just go, okay, Jesus, coming to see you. I can't handle that kind of rejection. I'm just not at that place in my life, I guess. Okay. You're dead to me. The entire world system for Paul was just dead to him. It had no more power. It had no more allure, no more attraction. Everything that the world calls valuable and good, I now see for what it is. But he is alive to God. He's alive to God. And he realizes this now. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A new creation. Not that you would take this flesh and do the most worthy thing possible with it, but that you would forget this flesh and live to God as a new creation. A new creation. Not trying to make the best of your old life, but to live an entirely new life. Not to just try to be a better version of yourself, but be a whole different self. A new creation. Paul also combines these ideas, dying to the world, living as a new creation, in his second letter to the believers in Corinth. In in chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, he says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. There's the cross. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For those of us who trust in Christ, we are a completely different person than we were before. But to rely on the flesh, to be self-reliant, to continue to try to be good enough for God, rather than trusting completely in Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift from God, We're denying our new identity. We're just trying to be better than we were before. It'll always fail and it'll always lead to heartache. The most pressing issue at stake in Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we just try to bring this together and wrap this up as he did, not whether they were circumcised or they rested on Saturday or what feasts they attended, whether they should do those things or not as Christians. That wasn't the most pressing issue. It was the most pressing and urgent issue. The theme of the gospel itself. Belief in what Christ accomplished on the cross and why. Because of who He is and who He's calling us to be in Him that human beings cannot be reconciled to God through our own efforts. But we must trust in God to graciously give us a new identity in Christ 
that's marked by His righteousness and a desire to live for His glory rather than our own. This is the core of the Gospel message. Where the Galatians had failed, where they had wandered, and where they had found a lot of turmoil and heartache and confusion and strife among each other, was that they forgot the heart of the Gospel, which is the cross of Christ. We are redeemed sinners. And we trust completely in Christ, moment by moment, day by day, to live for His glory and not our own. Not in order to pay back a debt, because Christ has paid it in full, but in order to live out of worship for what's already been accomplished for us. This is our life personally. This is our life together. This is our life forever. And living it now is the life of a Christian. We need to return to these things every day. Every day. And I think we'll find power and wisdom from the Spirit in these things. So, in keeping with what we've learned from the Lord, let's turn to Him in dependence, in prayer, ask for His help to remind us and help us and lead us and empower us in living this way. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.